In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Shut down. Uh, today, we're, it's Reformation Sunday. Reformation Sunday is always hard because it's kind of the same. Every year, it's about the same. And you're talking about standing and grace and the, the, the whole story. And a couple years ago, we went through the whole the history of it. Uh, today, I picked a little bit different text than normal. And I'm going to tell you a little uh, some history, and we're going to connect some things and, and what, it, what it means to your position today. So I think a lot, not a lot of us are reformers for the whole church. And when I hear the story of Martin Luther, I'm like, that's utterly amazing. But the opportunity on many levels hasn't really shown itself for me. It's not like there's multiple things where a whole church, the known Christendom is against me as an individual looking down. But it's, what does this look like in your everyday life? And that's what we're going to try and do today. So to do that, I got to tell you a couple stories. Uh, one from my, many of you know, one of my best friends in the world is uh, Pastor Tim Spiegelberg. He started a church up in Firestone. So he's got, I've told you stories about his cabinet. So he was born in Alaska. And I'll tell you two, I'll tell you the second one, my favorite story in a bit. So they got property, so I don't know how they even did this. So there's ultimate, his dad is a fascinating human being. And when he went to give uh, the installation of Pastor Spiegelberg, he told a story about taking the lumber to go build this cabin. So they would wait till the snow fell, and then they would ride their snow machines, that's what they call them in Alaska. And they would take all the lumber, bit by bit, to make the foundation and everything that's involved. So while we were there, I remember distinctly when, this is maybe five years ago, his mom's in the front row, and his dad is telling this story about when the snow machine got stuck, and then they just left the kids in a, like in a sleeping bag, and then he went to go get help to try and, like in the middle of a blizzard, and she's just like, what, Tom? So if you knew Pastor Spiegelberg, not the friend of mine, but his dad, uh, all this makes sense. So this is the second thing that also makes sense, my favorite story about it. So they, they put all this effort in, they get this land about 50 miles south of Mount McKinley, 800 square foot cabin, and they had to take it in like bit by bit to build this um, cabin. And the way that they have to do it is really tricky. Foundations are challenging there because a lot of times the land is frozen and it moves and there's a concept called frost jacking, I think it's called. Is anyone familiar with this? I knew, I knew of all people you would know this. All right, so frost jacking has this idea. We don't, it's not as big a deal here. I mean, we entry our sprinklers, but in areas where it never thaws, like where I grew up in Wisconsin, and then even more so in Alaska where it freezes, a lot of people dig their, their um, you dig your hole kind of like this because it's easier, if, especially if you have a shovel. They dig it down like this. You put in your post, you put in your concrete, and over time as it freezes and, and the ground expands and the frost comes, it slowly it kind of catches that, V and it lifts it up and then uh, the ground isn't perfectly frozen so it kind of settles itself underneath it and so slowly over time it lifts its way up. So they, he was telling a story about they went, uh, when they built this cabin they got these big 12 by 12 things and they put them out and the way that they put them, they dug them into the ground and then when they came back the following spring it was six feet out of the ground and so they said, okay, okay, we can't, we can't do that. This is not a good idea. So then they had to dig all the way around it again and then what they did is they wrapped it with aluminum and what happens if you want to know that the real way to make this stop, so if you're thinking about building in the middle of nowhere in Alaska, you would, you would build your foundation more like this instead of like this, and then you'd make the sides as smooth as possible. That would be, so you owe me one if you build a cabin. Uh, but, but the aluminum, the idea was that no matter what was happening, the cabin itself would stay, and if anything, the aluminum would move, but ideally it was slippery enough, I think, so that when the ground got around it, it would just kind of slide up the side. That was the concept of it. So why do I bring all this stuff up? And I think of all things, when we're talking about our culture around us, when you think about Reformation, the culture around us is moving in a different direction. And, it, and I think you've probably experienced this as a conservative Christian 
who is looking and says, this is what the Bible says. It feels like what is happening. It's like, it feels like we're kind of a post in the ground, at least to me, and like the world is just shooting in a whole different direction. It didn't always feel like that. When I was a kid, it felt like I would talk to my friends and go around, and it felt like everyone kind of felt like I felt, and everyone kind of more or less believed what I, I mean, the most extreme example we had is like the kids I would play at the park with, they were Catholic, right? But they still knew who Jesus was, and you're like, okay. Um, this, but now it's like a whole different world culturally. So the section I want to look at and then and apply is in Ephesians chapter 6. Probably a familiar section to many of you. So this is Ephesians 6. So finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. After you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So how many of you are familiar with this section? How many of you had it like growing up in Sunday school? Did anyone have a poster? So here's my, here's my poster. The star of this poster is Link from The Legend of Zelda, apparently. But, so, so you get, but as a kid, why would that be such a... This comes up when you're talking about um, youth group, and it comes up when I was a kid multiple times. And I can think of probably five different times when I was a kid, and the pastor would come and say, hey, I've got a devotion before Boy Pioneers is what's... We didn't have Boy Scouts. We had Boy Pioneers. And then they would talk about all these items. Why was it so important for kids? I think it's tangible. It's like you could almost picture it, like because we're, we're we're going against this battle, and then it, you can just picture putting these things. I remember one guy even putting the items on, like he had a cardboard like shield, and and like that doesn't seem very protective, but we'll go with it. But I mean, you get this idea, right? So there's these these abstract ideas that are suddenly, as a kid, a little bit more concrete. And some levels, we attempt to do that when we're talking with our kids. We do a kids lesson. If I just talked in abstracts. With the kids of any, they barely know what I'm talking about anyway when I'm trying, and, but I'm not especially good at it. But how much more is it when you try and talk in concrete terms, like a firm foundation, you push a kid off a styrofoam block, they're like, okay, that's, that foundation's no good. I can talk to you as adults without pictures. You don't need pictures because you can picture abstract thought. And this is always the challenge if you're talking on a bigger picture when we're teaching in our uh, confirmation classes. These kids are 12 and 13 years old, and they have not quite gotten to the point where they see and understand abstract thoughts. So if you're trying to figure out why can't your kid understand abstract things, it's really not until they're in high school before they can understand these thoughts. They have good memories, but they really struggle with trying to get these thoughts. I'm not going to talk about that. Like, nice. The, the main thing I don't want to talk about is this arm. I'm not going to go through each of these. I've, I've been through probably 15 of sermons that have done this, uh, you know, that go through each of the items, and you say, the thing I want to point back to is if we kind of go back to the beginning. It says, finally be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. For your struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Uh, there's a phenomenon that is happening, and I don't know how you grew up, if you grew up in the church. It sure seemed like when I was a kid, they talked about the devil a lot more. And they would talk about the devil's schemes, and they would talk about the devil tempting us. 
it's probably my fault as a pastor, but how often do you hear people talk about the devil tempting you? It's almost non-existent. And so 2,000 years ago, Paul is sitting down with his people and he said, this is something that's really important. Before you put on all this gear and before you find this firm foundation, the battle you're against is not love these outside things that you can see. It's against things that you can't see. So I think the best example is, is anyone uh, fly a lot through DIA? Okay, so there's different techniques when you get on the train. There's different techniques. And you see, the first technique is go right to the front and sit down. That's the ideal technique because then you're a hero if someone who is... Uh, older gets on, you can get up and give up your place. That's the best way to do it. That's technique number one, if you want to feel good about yourself. And then technique number two is to try and surf. So if you fly, I fly about once a month, and my goal is always to not touch anything, and I don't want to lean against the wall. My, so you gotta, you got to kind of get like the low stance. So, so I watch the new people. But So if someone doesn't fly a lot, they have no idea which direction the train is going to go. So this is always entertaining. How many of you have seen... It, Every single time I've ever been on the train, people are there, they're holding on a thing, they're Whoa. like, they, I'm like, we're on a train, right? This is a moving vehicle, you should look around, and so, but I think in their mind, they think it does go a different direction than you think. So everyone is ready, they brace themselves, and then it goes the very way that they're leaning, so then they fall, and I don't, you know, I don't laugh or anything like that, externally. So, so I get in my stance, I don't want to touch anything, partly because I'm a germaphobe, you know, so then you sit there, and if you know what's coming, is it hard to surf? If you look down, especially if you're in the front car and you can see which way it's curved, is it hard to surf? It's not. It is not that difficult. It's actually pretty fun, right? So you know the train is going to go this direction, so you brace yourself. You know where the curves are coming because you can see them coming. My question to you is how much of when the devil's schemes come, right? It's a scheme. That's what it refers to. It's a scheme because we don't know what's coming. It's not very tricky if the devil said, here's what I'm going to do. Today at 6 o'clock... I'm going to have a tempting thing come in your life. And you're like, okay. And then six o'clock comes and you're like, oh, here it is, right? It, it, we have no idea when this is going to come. And so most of our life, when we're talking about standing firm, is what we're kind of emphasizing today, I think is moments. There's like distinct moments in our life that we did not see coming that we have to be ready for when they hit. Just this idea of standing firm isn't something that you're doing all the time. I don't picture people like this all the time, right? That'd be kind of weird if you, whenever you walk into a room, like, hey, pastor, yeah. You're right, like, you're just not like that. You're not ready for it. Even, you're, you're thinking, when is this going to hit me? And so from a scriptural standpoint, there's moments in time, and you can think of very positive moments. I think of Joshua, as he is about to, he's his farewell speech, Joshua 24, and you can picture all the people are gathered together, and he sits down and he says, like, you guys can do whatever you want, but as for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord, right? So this is a moment where he says, this is the time where you get to choose. But there's other moments that have utterly defined human beings that went the other direction. And I think if you think back in your own life, there is distinct moments on the positive end that have like changed the trajectory of where you go as a family. And we have that constantly in scripture, right? There's positive ones where Jesus is tempted by the devil. And what does he say? He says, I'm not going to do that. There's negative ones where Peter is in the, and in, in as a kid, you know, they're coming. Jesus even told him, like, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And as a kid, you're reading the story, you're like, oh, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't listen to her. And then at every time, right, the Bible never changes. He still denies her, again, dies Jesus again and again and again. And, like, my heart sinks when I think about Jesus just looking at him. What are we talking about? We're talking about moments that define them. When you think of Peter, what do you think of? When you think of David, what do you think of? 
maybe these great battles, but I think a lot of us think, wow, there is a moment where he's sitting on his roof when he's supposed to be fighting and he sees Bathsheba and he says, hey, can you guys go talk to that girl and see if she can come over to my place? Right? That's a moment. It's not like he was doing that all the time and she's the first one to say yes. There's just this moment where he is vulnerable. That's a scheme. If you follow football at all, I don't like to bring up football too often, especially the Patriots. That's the end of the illustration. <laughs> no, the, the, no, but Sam Darnold, I, Darn, Darnold, Darnold, I think that's how you say it. I don't, have, I don't have cable, so I always have to read the name, so I never hear him pronounce. But Sam Darnold, 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 what is it? Darnold. All right, so he wasn't especially good last year as a rookie, I believe, and then this year he had mono, and then he uh, beats the Cowboys, and then, and then he had this amazing game, and he goes against the Patriots, and he's mic'd up. Can you imagine this? They're like, hey, we want to mic you. Did you hear the quote that he said? I'm seeing ghosts. And what was happening is they, why is that? It's not like he, did, he saw a guy coming, and there was like two of them. He had no idea because the Patriots had a scheme. They're meant to confuse him. And so the thing I want to touch on a little bit is what a guy named James Emery White, which I think is going to, this is how he talks about this, and I think it's going to make some sense, and you're like, this isn't really, um, it'll make some sense. He says, when we talk about the culture that we live in, as far as believers, we have the 10%, this is just made up numbers roughly, but I mean, he says 10% of believers, these are the intense, they're, they're, there's nothing that's going to change their mind, they're completely, like they have like the fish sticker on the car and then they they have like the things on their wall and they they raise up their kids and they only have fox news on so that nothing is going to happen and then the other one is the secularist which would be someone who is like talking uh, richard dawkins who's an atheist it's someone who studies women's studies at cu boulder or something like that it's very unlikely in a five-minute conversation if you are a believer way on this end the 10 percent, and they're on this other 10 percent, that you're going to go you know what i think we see everything about the same right it's not going to happen but for most of us, the way he talks about it is this squishy center. And he's saying the squishy center is uh, a weird thing to say, but the squishy center is this idea that these are people that don't really care that much. They're not that invested in it. And if you had a conversation with them, they kind of go where the culture flows. And to me, that makes a whole lot of sense. How is it that not too many years ago, they had an affirmation of marriage in California, and we're talking like not that many years later, it's totally different. Like, how does the whole thing sway? How does it sway when you're talking about, like, there's no states that have euthanasia, and then I think Vermont enters it, and then probably Oregon, and then Washington, and now, like, it's sweeping that people are saying that euthanasia is an okay thing. How does this happen? Like, how can it, if everyone was just, like, 50-50, you're not going to get that much of a bend. He's saying, for that example, for example, euthanasia, or marijuana, let's just use that in our state, because whenever I travel out of state, people talk to me and ask if like everyone's smoking pot. <laughs> Not everyone I know, but I mean, maybe. Um, so 10% of the population really said pot is the biggest thing ever. We've got to make this happen. And they're legislating. They're donating money. They're talking to people. They're trying to get people to sign. That's only 10%. How many of you feel strongly enough to do something about it? 10% said this is going to be the worst thing that could ever happen to our state. And so they're saying we cannot do this. So they're the ones also calling you, say you shouldn't do this. But what happens? We have 80% of the people in the middle, roughly, that are going, hmm, where's the rest of the culture going? And wherever the culture goes, they just say that makes sense. That's fine. And so now our state has legalized marijuana, and I think Wisconsin's talking about it, and multiple states. It's just a matter of time before culturally they say, 
pot's fine, and it's just going to shift that way. It's happened with marriage and euthanasia and pot and, like, you name it. The world has changed since the 1950s where most people went to church. If you grew up in the 1950s, uh, I can look back and you can see the stats. I grew up in the 70s. But in the 70s, even as a kid, most of my friends went to church. When I go around the neighborhood, like on Sunday, you didn't knock on doors on Sunday morning because most people that culturally went to church on Wednesday night, they didn't have stuff because most people had some kind of church thing, so they didn't even schedule stuff. There was no sports on Sunday morning. Why is that? Because culturally, that 80% was leaning towards things that lined up with, the, with believers and what God's Word said. If you'd say, what does the Bible say about God's Word? Is the, is the Bible true? Yes. You'd say, what does it say about marriage? It would be the same thing. What does it say? Should we have euthanasia and be able to kill people if they want to? All these people would say no. Do you ever feel like we're this post and the culture is just like flying by? I don't think it's getting more conservative. I don't think culture that's pushing and leaning against us is getting closer and closer to biblical values. So God says what? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you're able to stand your ground. How many of you have seen Hamilton? Has anyone seen Hamilton, the movie? I jumped onto it. So we got just one? Really? This is supposed to be the best Broadway. We got one? And my kids, all right, so we got a few, okay, so we went for the lottery, it took the home equity loan, and I got tickets for the kids, but they only got four tickets, so they went, I drove around in a car, read a book, and then I picked them up when they was done. What, it's, it's a fascinating, just listen to the soundtrack, and you're going to want to see it, and then we're actually thinking about flying to, like, Milwaukee, if we ever get into the lottery for the $10 tickets, it's a long story, we're thinking about it, but one of the key lines where, this is Alexander Hamilton confronting Aaron Burr, and you guys know a lot about Aaron Burr, right? No, no one does. No one knows anything about Aaron Burr. He sounds like a stud in the thing. But I don't think in real life, if you look up photos, he was really a stud. But this is, this is what it sounds like. But there's this key line where they're going back and forth, and this is attributed to Hamilton in real life. And it's phrased a little bit different. But he said, it should come through, if you stand for nothing, what will you fall for? Because Aaron Burr was wishy-washy and would go whatever. What I actually thought it meant the first time I heard it was, if you're not passionate about anything, like what are you willing to die for because they're getting ready to go to battle. That's not really what it's talking about at all. You guys are smarter than I am. What is it talking about? It says if you don't have this plot of ground, if you don't have this ideal, if you don't have this kind of a foundation in something, everything else looks good. And if you don't say to yourself at some point, here's what God says, and here's his promises, and here's what's right, and here's what's wrong, everything else looks good. Culturally, that happens in your world that, looks, that happens. If you don't have specific ideas about, like, let's just talk about something simple, about what's good to eat and what's not good to eat. You get a cookbook, and you're like, yeah, that'll be good, right? It's like whatever catches your eye. Uh, and from human sexuality, if you don't say, here's what God says about it, Everything else is going to look good and make sense. Politically, things are going to make sense. And you go, okay, all these things, but what happens when you get out into these other foundations? When you get off a foundation that means something, everything else looks good. Now, this is not Alexander Hamilton. It's the prophet Isaiah. He said the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is 
only Ramaliah's uh, son, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you're not going to stand at all. The culture is flying by. 500 years ago, Martin Luther had a moment where he had to decide, what am I going to do? He goes and he puts on the 95 Theses, but it's not that much longer. He's at the Diet of Worms, and he's standing before all the officials of the Catholic Church, and they're saying, what are you going to do? And he says, give me a night. And he comes back the next day, and he says, probably his most famous line of all time, which is, here I stand, pointing at the Scriptures, and I cannot do otherwise. What is your moment? When are you going to make your stand? It's super easy, and it sounds like, no, 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 I don't get washed away with the culture. But, I mean, just think about um, parenting. Is it easier to take a stand with your kids or just say, like, that's fine? What's easier? At work, is it easier just to go, whatever? Or is it easier to take a stand? What you're doing in your marriage or what you're doing with your money or what you're doing with your entertainment or what you're doing with all these other things, is it easier to take a stand or is it easier to go, whatever? God does not say, if you stand firm in your faith, whatever. God says, take a stand. Be willing to see what is going on in the world and say, here is where I stop because this is what God's word tells me. But then we fall, right? I think this is the hardest thing about it. I, I think a lot, hypothetically, it's really easy to say, I'm going I'm to put my foot down and I'm going to put on the armor of God and I'm going to stand on God's word and when I think about those moments, the positive moments, that were that changed the trajectory of my life with God and my life with my family and raising them in the Lord, but I think about a whole lot of other moments where there was a moment in time where I had the opportunity to say, I'm going to stand on God's word or I'm going to do something that I want to do in my own heart. And I didn't really stand on that foundation and you step out into something and what are you going to fall for? The devil's schemes. Devil schemes that say this sin looks good or money is the answer for happiness or this is the way for security or this is, you're going to feel better about yourself if you start making fun of people. What are you going to fall for? There's moments that define people and I think of King David, I mean in my head he's a great king and, and one of the greatest ever but in my head he's an adulterer and a murderer. And I think, I think back at a few people when I say Bill Clinton for example, what do you think of? Do you think like hey, this is a president who X, Y, Z or do you think of an of a moment. Your life can be defined by a moment. It can be defined by a moment that says, I chose the wrong way and I fell away. Or it can be cho chosen by a moment where you say, God, I am broken, I am fallen. The way that it shows it in the scriptures, just in that same section we're in, get it to turn. Maybe if you can give me one click. Stand firm then, and then one more page. The readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. What is the peace? The peace is when we're broken and we've made mistakes and we've fallen and we feel like we, we can never come back again. That's a devil's scheme too. As he stands and he laughs at you and says, you, have, you don't deserve anything that goes near God. So what we do, we just crawl and we stand on that foundation. What does that foundation say? That foundation says that Jesus was willing to stand. For you. 
Jesus was willing to stand in the seat of mockers as they made fun of. Jesus was willing to stand and bear the weight of our sin. Jesus was willing to stand in hell. Jesus was willing to stand in your place so that you could know forgiveness. For what reason? So that you could get back up on your feet and put all this armor on and stand firm in a singular place that is God's promises is that you are forgiven, that you are loved, and that the world is going to keep moving, but stand firm on me and make your choices. What would it look like what would it look like if you think about this next week? Each one of us is going to have some moments that are going to define you on some level. What would it look like if we said, instead of trying to see what the world says and feel all those things out, I'm going to say, what does God's word say? And here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there are moments that come to all of us, moments that define us. There was moments for you as you stood in our place when the accusations were coming, you never once faltered. And when you took on the weight of sin, you did that. Why? Because if you don't care for anything, you fall for anything, but you cared for our salvation so you did not fall for any of the devil's schemes. And when it got hard and when he got hard-pressed, again, you went to your Father and you followed his will. Many of us have had moments these coming days, uh, moments that have defined us and we feel good about ourselves, but we've had plenty of moments where we've fallen and we have not stood on your word and we have not stood on your promises when we hear the ideas of the culture and we're ready to be pushed along where they go. Help us to have the integrity, help us to have the courage to see what you say about who we are and how the world works and to be able to stand there. And help us care enough about the people in our lives. Help us care enough about ourselves. Help us care enough about our salvation that we stand firm in our faith, as Isaiah says. So if we stand firm in our faith, we, we do not fall. And it, let's look at the devil's schemes and call them what they are. There's so many things around us that seem physical things that we know what's coming, and that's no big deal. But the devil comes from all angles. Help us be vigilant and be ready to stand firm in your word and so that we move forward as fathers and mothers and as kids and as employees and employers in our calling, ready to stand firm in you. We ask this in your name. Amen.